but had the first use of a microphone before. Thank you. That radio sound. All right, good. Um, I'm going to pray, and, uh, and then we're going to uh, get into God's word. Father God, we thank you for your word, that you've delivered it to us so that we can study it. Now we ask that you open up our hearts to it and open up it to our hearts. We ask this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. A man wakes up in the morning, deeply repentant after a bitter fight with his wife the night before. He notices with dismay the case of beer bottles that had caused the fight. He takes it outside and he starts angrily smashing the bottles against the wall as a guy venting his frustration about the fight and smashes the first one. You're the reason that I fight with my wife. Smash the second one. You're the reason that I don't look after my kids. Smash the third one. You're the reason I don't have a good job. And grabs the fourth bottle and realizes it's still full and still capped. And he goes, you stand aside, you're not involved. <laughs> not exactly a deep repentance. Just prior to Easter, we completed our series on Colossians, Paul's letter to the Colossians. And we're just about to start now a, a 10-part series on the commands of Jesus. It's inspired in large part by a, uh, well, the commands of Jesus, but um, also a, a book by John Piper called What Jesus Demands of the World. Um, it's available electronically for free on his website, desiringgod.org, if you're interested in picking it up. But we're going to be looking at the collection of things that Jesus directly commands during his three-year ministry on earth. So whenever Christ fairly bluntly says, you should do this, those are the things we'll be looking at over the next few weeks. Next week, we're looking at the commands to abide and to listen. Uh, so be here for that. This week, we're beginning with two very fundamental and great commands with which Jesus begins his ministry, to repent and to believe. As in Mark 1.15, the time has come, he said, the kingdom of God is near, repent and believe the good news. And you may have spotted those words rattling around in our verses today. So today it's repent and believe, repent and believe. They go hand in hand, one causes the other, though which order those happen in is a matter of some theological debate, but we'll start with repent. Is there any more churchy word than repent? Anyone more laden with Christianese? conjures up images of, of red-faced hellfire preachers pounding the pulpit and lightly spritzing the front row with excited spit. Or at least that's the image that will spring to the mind of our family and friends who are not churchgoers themselves or do not read scripture because they don't have a gentler picture to draw upon. To me, repent is a, is a quiet, cool night where I reflect on my failures and I submit them before God. And then a, a satisfying feeling like pulling that loop out of the phone cord, out of the, um, the phone cord, out of the, the, the cable for your headphones in your pocket and the whole thing comes straight. Ah, life is good. And there's a few different meanings for repent in scripture. Uh, in the Old Testament, the Hebrew word means a change in behavior. It literally means to turn, to turn from something towards something else, to turn from sins towards God. So the people of God will turn from their sins toward him, and then they will turn from their God towards sins, and then they will turn from their sins back towards God and back again. In fact, you'll find in many translations, uh, the Old Testament will have God say things like this in Exodus 32, 14. Then the Lord relented of his calamity when he, that he was going to bring upon the people. 
Now, relented is a fairly modern word choice. Older translations, your King James and such, will put it more bluntly. Then the Lord repented of the evil that he was going to bring on the people. And that's weird for Christians to read because we love our New Testament, and in the New Testament, the thing you repent of is sin. But there's this core meaning to that word there, at least in the Old Testament, that means you just stop doing one thing and do the other. So the answer to the question, does that mean that God sinned? No. He's just turning from one thing to another. In the New Testament, there are two ways we encounter the word repent. One is just this idea of regret. You know, I, I wish I had my time machine so I could go back to unscrew up the thing I screwed up. That's the first feeling of repentance. But the way Jesus uses repent, it's a Greek word, uh, metanoia. It's always going to be a Greek word. But two parts, meta and noia. Uh, meta means change. Metamorphic rock is like rock that's been bombarded by heat and has changed in some way. Your metabolism is the, the function of your body in, in changing your cells and, and keeping you going. And the second part of that word, you've got meta and then you've got nu. Nu goes to noia, but nu is the based word, which is fun. Nu like mu. Um, nu like neurotic, like neurosis, like neurons, like neurosurgeon. Brain stuff, mental stuff, therefore, meta new to change one's mind. Pretty simple stuff. Now you know Greek. So to repent is to change the mind in the context of a command from Jesus. And this is a command to change the way we think about God. That is to change what you believe. And believe has a fairly straightforward meaning in the New Testament when Jesus uses it. What you believe is what you hold to be true. The words believe, uh, have faith, to trust, these all come from the same Greek term as well. It's pistis, as in pistachio? I don't know, we don't carry that one over into the English as much, but pistis nonetheless is the word. So repent and believe. Change your mind from thinking one thing to thinking another thing. Sounds like a simple idea, absolutely not a simple concept. There's a gentleman called Jonathan Haidt, um, and he's a name popping up in YouTube and TEDx and all these new media spaces the young kids are looking at with their TEDx and their MacBooks and their hula hoops and hopscotch. Jonathan Haidt is not a believer, but he's a fairly clear thinker. Um, and he points out something in, a, in a, the process of believing that it's often relative to the thing being believed. He makes a point when discussing belief that when we're confronted with new information, if it's information we like, if it's interesting, if it's something we want to accept, then we ask ourselves the question subconsciously, can I believe this? It's a positive idea, you kind of want to. Is there anything stopping me from believing this? Is there a good reason I shouldn't? Otherwise, I'll take it on board. But by contrast, if this new information is unwelcome, or unpleasant, or difficult, or painful, we ask, must I believe this? Do I have to believe this? Is there any way I can get out of it? Is there a flaw or a reason I can discard this and go on without it? So a, a sample group of people were given an academic study to read and then respond to. A 2014 study by the Wellness Institute showing a non-trivial link uh, between a positive diagnosis of breast cancer 
and high consumption of caffeine. High consumption of caffeine, positive correlation to breast cancer diagnosis. So who do you suppose in this group is the group that summons up the, the most skepticism to find flaws in this study? It's gonna be your coffee drinking women, of course. Right, they're the ones who have something to lose there, like that makes a deal to them. That's painful implications. They'll look at this much more closely. They'll look for things that they, uh, they don't find particularly convincing in this study. The men who read the study go, oh, never knew that, and then move on with their lives. And the women who don't drink coffee at all find this very vindicating of their previous choices, and they're very happy to believe it themselves. Fake study, by the way. Not actually true, if anyone was worrying. The link actually goes the other way, funnily enough. Women who drink up to uh, five cups or more of coffee a day have a, uh, a moderately reduced risk of some breast cancers. There you go. Do you believe it? Mm. <laughs> so along comes Jesus, proclaiming the kingdom of heaven is here, repent and believe. Repent and believe. So who is initially going to be willing to listen, to repent and believe? Probably everyone who thinks the present kingdom stinks. Maybe the poor, the socially outcast, the revolutionary Jews who want to see the Romans turfed out. All those people can ask, can I believe this? The evidence is there, he's doing miracles. He's casting out demons, he knows scripture. I repent and I change my belief. But if you're a Pharisee or a Sadducee, a well-to-do Jew who might academically resent the Roman presence, but are living a pretty good life while they're there all the same, and a pretty good life that might be imperiled if someone rocks the boat too hard, they're gonna ask, must I believe this? The evidence is sketchy, the miracles are probably fake, he might be casting out demons with demons and he keeps hiding behind scripture. I do not repent or change my mind or believe. Now we don't consciously go through this process, but we all go through a process like this, kind of back there, you know, in the, in the subconscious, and it reveals to us something important. Much as we like to think of ourselves as logical creatures who think everything out before we do them, we are emotional creatures first. We are feeling creatures that think, not thinking creatures that feel. If you are angry enough, you will logically justify lashing out at people you love. If you are lonely enough, you will logically justify infidelity. If you are jealous enough, then you will steal. If your only guides to action are emotion and logic, emotion will beat up logic every time and take its lunch money. So this paints a very interesting and kind of bleak picture of mankind, a wishy-washy creature who does the thing that corresponds with what they're feeling at the time, which is exactly the picture of man without God that scripture gives us. James 1.5 says, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. 
That's the double-minded man, the wave in the sea. Must I? Can I? What do I feel like? What can I get away with? It's a weaselly way to live, and you know when you're doing it because it feels bad. But then if people are just weaseling along like this, what is Jesus actually hoping to accomplish when he confronts people and tells them to repent and believe? He's only going to get those people who are primed to believe in the first place, right? He's going to get the can-eyes, but none of the must-eyes. And then those are likely to change. In truth, it's not Jesus' command at that time that does the heavy lifting to allow people to really believe. Because he had huge crowds following him, and then after the tables turned and suddenly he was on trial, the crowds were crying out for his blood. It was not a lasting repentance and belief. The equation had changed. It wasn't, can I believe that Jesus will deliver me into a better kingdom with a better life? Now it's, must I believe that it's necessary to identify with this man being humiliated and executed before my eyes, which might result in me being humiliated and executed as well? Can I maybe instead believe that this mob might be onto something? I should throw in with them. If Jesus' death or rather, it was, well, it was Jesus' death on the cross that had the power to take away the sins of the world, but it was Jesus' resurrection that had the power to make men believe. It was the resurrection that had the power to enable men to believe, because all of us are ultimately afraid of death. Death is the ultimate uncertainty. But Jesus says, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever so believes in him shall not perish, but will gain eternal life. Can I believe that? Yes, I can. Even if it means I'm associated with a man who is to be executed? Yes, I can, because if I'm executed, to die is gain now. There's heaven on the line. And sometimes I don't think we quite handle the idea of heaven and hell as well as we should. We're, we're pretty detailed detail-honorated, wow, detail-oriented generation. Ironic, that. Um, and we're not the first detail-oriented generation. And the truth is, we don't know a lot about what heaven or hell will be like. What we're promised is an end to uncertainty. Life everlasting with God will be good, definitionally, because God's good. But any notions we have of clouds and harps that's all guesswork and not particularly reliable. Damnation in hell will be bad. How bad? I don't know. There's a suggestion that fire is involved. Not going to be a lot of fun. Probably want to avoid it. You know, how good is heaven going to be? What's it going to be like? What are we going to do in heaven? I don't know. I can barely plan my calendar a week in advance. I can't tell you what I will be doing in a thousand years. Same thing goes for hell. And all the popular visions of hell are these dark imaginings of artistic minds, but it's all sort of poetic guesswork around the theme of fire and darkness and bad. But it's a confirmation of everything that we might fear might happen after death. And the promise of eternal life is a confirmation of all our hopes of what might happen after death. That's why Jesus' invitations are about 
giving truth, giving wisdom, knowledge, direction. He is the way, the truth, the light. He is the light and the darkness, the gate, the shepherd. The world is too big and uncertain for us to grapple with, let alone what is outside of our world. But Jesus steps into our world and proves his power over it and then his power beyond death. And then he says, as he has always said, repent and believe. Change your mind. Build your view of the world around me because I can give you the assurance of life and rest that you desperately need. That is peace. And the alternatives are not appealing. The truth is that it's an intolerable having fun tonight. An intolerable state for someone to not believe in something. To not believe in something that strongly. To not have an ultimate cause that lends their life meaning and clarity and direction. And if if that cause doesn't come from faith in Jesus Christ, it will come from somewhere else. It will fashion it from whatever is at hand. I don't know if you're like me and you've been watching the news feed from the United States. Um, and the constant protest riots happening there right now. Last week in California, they had the Battle of Berkeley. Berkeley is home to California's biggest university and uh, traditionally their most politically radical in that 60s kind of way. But at Berkeley, a number of right-wing political groups banded together to hold a Patriots rally. Um, And they do this knowing that there is a number of left-wing groups who are just waiting to come out and oppose them. So both sides go in spoiling for a fight. And a fight, of course, is going to happen. The right-wing folks come in wearing bicycle helmets and and skate pads and football gear, kind of repurposed as armor for the battle. Some of them uh, do the old trick of duct-taping magazines around their midsection to protect against stabbing. They uh, developed a trick where they disguise the rods and clubs as flagpoles, um, and then very quickly remove the flag and get to business when the opportunity arrives. The other guys, the the left-wing groups, have no such subtlety. They use what they call black block tactics. Everyone wears black to make them hard to identify in after-action footage. Masks, balaclavas, bandanas, some knives floating around in there apparently, cans of mace, one smoke grenade was thrown. Mostly, I understand, they were throwing these little M80 firecrackers into the crowd. Not exactly a hand grenade, but they will blow off fingers and toes. And it's reported they would put them in empty wine bottles and then throwing them in so it would burst like a grenade and throw glass everywhere. That's pretty bad. The whole thing over there is getting pretty bad. And the question I'm drawing from this is, what compels men and women in an arguably the freest, if not one of, certainly one of the most free countries in the world with one of the highest living standards, in one of the most beautiful places in the world, in California, What compels these people to start a gang war or else to go out and join one they know will happen? Well, they believe in it. It gives them meaning. It's something to fight for, to shut down the fascists or to slap around the cowardly communists. And young people are particularly vulnerable to this because older folks tend to have families that become the meaning for their life. But young folks, it can be politics or identity politics or total focus on the rights of one group or another, of refugees or the environment or science or free speech or patriotism or land rights or anything else. 
It's possible to believe in such things at the bottom of your soul so that everything else revolves around it. And so when Christ says repent and believe, he isn't just saying apologize for the bad things you've done and add belief that God is real and that Jesus is working for him to kind of the top of the stack of things you already believe. He's saying change the world that you live in when you get up in the morning from one about your family or about politics or about your dreams to one about him. And draw everything else into orbit around that. Because everything else, everything else is unsatisfactory or fleeting or ultimately passing and not the thing that you were made to live for. And every time one of these beliefs bottoms out because you can't get into the course that was going to define your life or, or the kids aren't quite what you expected them to be or the political tide shifts and suddenly the other side is winning and your side is just dreadful. Every time that happens, it damages your ability to believe at all. And I believe, and I'd love to talk about this after if you disagree, that it's possible for a person to get to the point where barring a flat-out miracle from God, that person cannot believe in anything anymore. They are too broken, too far gone. And on that topic of belief, I have a very disturbing parable for you. It's possible this is a parable that has never been read in a church before. This is because it's not a religious parable. It's written by one of the individuals that in history, Christians despised the most. He was definitely not a believer, but he was probably one of the most insightful thinkers on the topic of unbelief that ever lived. His name is Friedrich Nietzsche. If you haven't heard of him, you might have heard the quote, God is dead being thrown around. Nietzsche is a 19th century philosopher who made that quote, and two centuries later, Christians have gotten around to returning fire, but. You know, there's a movie, God's Not Dead, floating around now and a newsboy song of the same name playing on that quote. But I want to read this parable to you because it's the sharpest depiction of unbelief that I've ever seen. And when I read it first, it cut me to the core. It's not easy to hear. And there's a bit to it, and it's this rich 19th century language, but bear with me. It's called The Parable of the Madman. Have you not heard of that madman who lit a lantern in the bright morning hours and ran to the marketplace and cried incessantly, I seek God, I seek God. As many of those who did not believe in God were standing around just then, he provoked much laughter. Has he got lost, asked one. Did he lose his way like a child, asked another. Is he hiding? Is he afraid of us? Has he gone on a voyage or emigrated? Thus they yelled and laughed. The madman jumped into their midst and pierced them with his eyes. Whither is God, he cried. I will tell you, we've killed him, you and I. All of us are his murderers. But how do we do this? How could we drink up the sea? Who gave us the sponge to wipe away the entire horizon? What were we doing when we unchained this earth from its sun? Whither is it moving now? Where are we moving? Away from all suns? Are we not plunging continually, backwards, sideways, forward, in all directions? Is there still any up or down? 
Are we not straying as though, as through an infinite nothing? Do you not feel the breath of empty space? Has it not become colder? Is it not night continually closing in on us? Do we not need to light lanterns in the morning? Do you hear nothing as of yet of the sound of the grave diggers burying God? Do we smell nothing of the divine decomposition? God's too decomposed. God is dead. God remains dead and we have killed him. How shall we comfort ourselves, the murderers of all murderers? What was holiest and mightiest in all the world has bled to death under our knives. Who will wipe this blood off us? What water is there for us to clean ourselves? What festivals of atonement shall we have to invent? Is not the greatness of this deed too great for us? Must we simply become gods ourselves to try and appear worthy of it? There has never been a greater deed and whoever is born after us for the sake of this deed will belong to a higher history than all history hitherto. Here the madman fell silent and looked again at his listeners, and they too were silent and stared at him in astonishment. At last he threw his lantern on the ground and it broke into pieces and went out. I've come too early, he said. My time is not yet. This tremendous event is still in its way, still wandering, and it has not yet reached the ears of men. Lightning and thunder requires time. Light of the stars requires time. Deeds, though done, require time to be seen and heard. This deed is still more distant from them than the most distant stars, and yet they have done it themselves. Now, Nietzsche, by all accounts, was a gentle soul, but deeply depressed for most of his life. He went insane several years after writing this, uh, eventually, and then he never quite recovered. The, the story is that he saw someone flogging a horse and then interposed himself, threw his arms around the neck of the horse to uh, interrupt the act and then collapsed, never fully recuperated for the several years following, leading to his death. It's uncertain what caused that insanity and death, disease, stroke, or too much awful reflection on his own thoughts. But for all his powerful intellect and speculation about what mankind might do in a world where they'd finally gotten rid of belief in God, he died terrified that the nations and the people of the world would rip themselves apart without that belief that the world was built on. And the wars of the next century nearly proved him right. This parable is the horrified yelp of a man who did not believe, who lost faith in the idea of belief altogether, and realized the hideous implications of stripping belief in God away from a world built on that belief because belief is not just accepting that something is true. It's taking something to be so certain that you use it as a, as a guide point for dealing with all the other uncertainties in your life. It's a decision and you stake your life on it. Because at any moment of the day, we could be invaded by a foreign power and attacked. Why doesn't this terrify us? Because we believe that our military and their allies are proof against such an invasion and that no one would try. So we can live in the comfort of that belief. You could run out of food and starve to death. Why doesn't this terrify us? Because we believe that our employer will keep us supplied with money and therefore food, or even if not that, that we have a family to support us in the interim or a church family or a government safety net. But one day, you will die. 
and everything you've earned and built will be divided up among other people who will also die. And a hundred years after that, no one will remember you. Your great-great-grandchildren are as likely to know your name as you are to know the names of your great-great-grandparents, and you probably don't. You will die, and every ripple you've made in this pond will settle eventually, and in enough years, no one will remember your name. And if you consider this seriously, it should terrify you. And there is only one reason not to be terrified by this, because you might believe that death is not the end. And there is only one reason that you can believe that, and that is that because Jesus rose from the dead. He proved it. And that kick-started the movement that defines the world we live in. That there is a, a perfect kingdom that will last, last forever, but it is available only to those who are free from sin, free from the stains and scars of a life lived in defiance of God. And Christ promised to pay that penalty for those sins in his death, and he proved his authority over the life that follows by rising from the grave. And because of that, we have hope. We can trust in him. We can have faith in our Savior, and we can Change our minds, repent, believe in him, and set our life to orbit around that belief. Let's pray. Father God, you did not abandon your children to the difficult and painful world that they made out of your perfect one. You chose to seek us in the world, in the person of your son Jesus, to die on the cross, to rise again, and so to take away sin and promise the way back to life everlasting. But neither did you blot out our will or enslave us to your plan. You command us to obey, to repent and believe. So help us live our lives with your son at the center, to bring your gospel to the world so that they might also come to repent and believe in your Son. We ask this in your Son's precious name. Amen.